You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Today, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, where Jeff left off. In Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 32 through 43. And what's going to happen today is, so the first really... 13 books or 13 chapters in the book of Acts is all about a guy named Peter. Uh, The rest of the book of Acts is all about a guy named Paul, okay? Well, we've taken kind of a break from talking about Peter the last two weeks, and we've talked about Paul. Saul's his Hebrew name, Paul's his Greek name. You know him as Paul most likely. And so two weeks ago, Pastor Brandon did an incredible job of talking about the conversion of Paul and how he gets saved. Last week, Jeff, head of our Rev Men's Ministry, did an incredible job of talking about how Paul went from a new believer and the wilderness that he went through as God prepared him for what we're going to see in the later parts of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament for the ministry that he was going to do. Today, in verse 32 of chapter 9, we're slingshotted back to Peter. And we're talking about Peter again, and we're back to from Paul, a couple weeks, little passages about Paul. Now we're back to talking about Peter again, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 32. Y'all ready? Say, I am. It says this, Acts chapter 9, verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Now, stop right here because I want to point something out. Uh, just as a reminder, Peter has been really at the home base of Jerusalem. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 8, persecution has hit the church. And the scripture tells us in Acts 8, 4, that everyone in the church was scattered, which led to the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth, except for the apostles who remained in Jerusalem. So I just want you to notice in chapter 9 that by all appearances we have in scripture, Nowhere does it tell us that Peter was forced to go to Lydda, that the Holy Spirit made him go. Peter takes it upon himself to leave Jerusalem, a place that he did not have to leave, in order to seek out opportunities to spread the gospel. How many of you guys are old enough in here to remember when cars had no power steering? Anybody remember that? Okay. This generation will never know. You know what I'm saying? Like, you went to the gym and worked out just so you could steer your car, right? I had a 1976 CJ5. It was one of my favorite vehicles that I've ever had. And then I got married and I had kids, and I don't know what happened to my man card, but I had to get rid of it, right? And it didn't have power steering, and I can remember when I had that Jeep, when it was sitting still, I could not turn the wheels. I couldn't steer it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You had to get it going a little bit in order to steer it well. And the idea used to be that in order to steer a car well, it's got to be moving. In order to, it's easier to steer a moving bicycle, so to speak, and this is what we see in Peter. Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, sit still and wait on me, but that time's over. Now, God is using Peter because Peter is seeking out opportunities to spread the gospel. 
He's moving somewhere and allowing the Holy Spirit to steer him, so to speak. I was thinking about this point, and I was thinking about just a few of the things that we say, such as, if you want, a busy, if you want something to get done, who do you ask to do it? Y'all already gave you the answer because I slipped up and said it wrong, right? A busy person. In other words, somebody that's already moving that can steer toward your direction and do something. I've come to realize that there's really two types of people in this world. There's those who do and those who delay. There's proactive people and there's procrastinators. And what we see in Peter is he's a doer and he's proactive. He's seeking out opportunities to be used by God. The greatest ability that Peter has in the book of Acts is his availability in other words. One of the greatest things that happened while I was gone, I mean, there was a lot of great stuff that happened. People got saved. The student ministry, they got summer nights going on. The kids ministry, today's color wars day. That's why kids are running around with their faces painted and everything. Just incredible what God's doing. But I heard that in our growth track, and you heard the announcement before service about our growth track, that we, we have like right now, this is second service, right now we should have about 20 to 30 people going through the growth track. And I love that because what that means is there's people that are taking their next step trying to discover their purpose in the growth track so that they can make a difference in the kingdom. In other words, they're seeking out opportunities to be used by God in the kingdom. They're moving and they're allowing the Holy Spirit to steer them. Does that make sense to everybody? So this is what we see in Peter in Acts chapter 9 in the first verse in verse 32. Now, let's get into verse 33 and let's take a look at two people uh, that Peter comes in contact with and let's take a look at two miracles and let's get into a little bit of theology about miracles and uh, should be good. Y'all ready? Say, I am. There he found a man named Ananias who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. It's actually Aeneas, not Ananias. If you think you can say biblical names better, you come up here and preach, okay, y'all? <laughs> Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Now, you may hear what Peter says right here, and you may get like a strong mom vibe out of it, right? Like get up and make your bed. But it's so deep because we can totally tell who discipled Peter based off of how he handles these two people that he's going to perform miracles on. It is a mirror, almost verbatim image of the way Jesus healed certain people during his ministry. John chapter 5, Mark chapter 2, Jesus was quoted as saying to someone, rise, pick up your mat, and walk home. Almost exactly what Peter says to this man, and you'll see to the next woman as well. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. If you remember, the book of Acts is written by a doctor named Luke, who also wrote the book of Luke. And we have no details or background about Aeneas other than his medical condition. He didn't just have a sprained ankle. He had been bedridden for eight years. Peter comes along. And a miracle happens. A miracle. Something that can't be explained other than it is a miracle of God. 
what I want to do for about the next 10 or 15 minutes is I want to teach on miracles and give us a theological foundation and a working definition of what constitutes a miracle biblically. Because I believe that the word miracle is overused and it's thrown around pretty hastily in the church. And the church has taken miracles in order to cause some people to be more spiritual and force other people to feel less spiritual, if that makes sense. Up until this point, we've seen in the book of Acts several miracles take place. Several miracles take place. But what we've also seen in the book of Acts is not necessarily miracles, but what I will refer to as, and I don't know what else to call them, I'll refer to them as other forms of supernatural workings of God. God working and God having his hand on people and God moving, but it's not necessarily in a miracle form. Now, by way of preface, before I talk about miracles and give this definition, I want you to understand this, and I'm very aware of this, that when it comes to defining miracles, it's somewhat subjective based off of your circumstances and your life experience and the things that you've seen. For instance, if you talk to someone that's had cancer for 10 years and been going through cancer treatments for 10 years, and 10 years after going through these treatments and just going through heck with it, they are declared cancer-free, they will probably look at you and say, it is a miracle. God has performed a miracle in my life. While others may not necessarily say it's a miracle based off the definition we're going to look at today, they would say, probably not a miracle, probably the medicine, probably the wisdom of the doctors that God gave them wisdom in order to treat you more than likely. If you talk to a mom that's had a child that's had addiction issues for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they've been hooked on meth or hooked on crack or whatever, then all of a sudden one day they get saved and God invades their life and they've been clean and sober for 5 to 10 years, that mom would probably look at you and say, God has performed a miracle in my child's life because they're not addicted to drugs anymore. I'm very aware of that, and there is some gray area here. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen, okay? Some situations might not fall into the category of the definition that I'm going to give you guys. So let's take a look at supernatural workings versus miracles. What are supernatural working? God working in your life, but it's not a miracle, versus uh, what really constitutes a miracle historically, theologically, as most people would agree. Supernatural workings, number one, I'll tell you this, four different things for both of them. We'll go through supernatural workings first. And guys, I got like, I don't just have one chart today, I got two. Are y'all excited? I've been out of town, man. What am I going to do? You know what I mean? All I thought about the whole time I was gone was this sermon. I'm like, okay, oh, two charts. Yes. So snap a picture when the chart's done. I'm sorry if y'all hate charts, but I got to give them to you. Okay. So Number one, when it comes to supernatural workings, God can work, and these are not miracles, okay? But number one, He works in what I call coincidental circumstances and altered patterns of events. Coincidental circumstances is like if you've ever been out and you've said something like this to yourself, what are the chances that I would be in this place at this time with these people, yada, yada, yada? Not necessarily a miracle, but clearly 
God accomplishing his will through the circumstances that you find yourself in. Make sense? Everybody kind of shake your head like this, okay? Just make me feel good and shake your head like this, okay? Secondly, in that category is altered, altered patterns of events. If I could explain this one, I was thinking about this one the other day, and I was thinking about, you know, you hear about 9-11 when the planes flew into the Twin Towers. And you hear people tell stories like, you know, um, I was late to work that day because the train, the subway I was on broke down, and so I never even made it into work. That's God altering a pattern of events. I was sick that day when I woke up and didn't even go to the first time I've been sick in forever, and it's the day that that happens. God can alter patterns of events. You've ever, you know, been delayed somewhere and you're 30 minutes late going somewhere and then when you're going there, you see there was a major car wreck on the interstate and you thought to yourself, it's probably good that we were late because that could have been us in that. That's not necessarily a miracle. Clearly could be God working supernaturally, but it's not a miracle. Is everybody still with me? Say amen. Supernatural working is when God uses the laws of nature. One theologian puts it like this, when God takes steps to advance his plan, he usually, almost always, y'all, usually works through the laws of nature, not against them. And so I'm trying to debunk this hyper-spirituality that has been preached from platforms before. Most of the time, God accomplishes his will through the laws of nature. Supernatural workings are when God empowers people. Uh, Supernatural workings are when God does things like when you get saved and you get a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. Now, getting saved is a miracle. More on that here in just a second. I believe that's a miracle. But but receiving a gift of the Spirit is not necessarily a miracle. Uh, Fruit of the Spirit, when you're patient through the power of the Holy Spirit, when you're kind through the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't constitute a miracle, even though your husband might say otherwise. Amen? Did y'all catch that? We're trying to keep y'all. I know this is like teaching. but So when God empowers people, uh, fourth thing you need to know about supernatural workings is it happens almost daily. It's very common. In other words, God always has his hand on you. Jesus said God keeps his hand on those that he loves. Romans chapter 8, God uses all things for good. How does he do that? Because he's involved in every intricacy in your life. Okay, And just because he's supernaturally working doesn't necessarily mean that he's performing miracles. Okay, Let's take a look at miracles, four qualities of miracles. Number one, miracles. Y'all still with me? Say I am. Okay, hope this helps. Uh, number one, miracles. It's commonly understood through theologians that What constitutes a miracle is something that happens that is perceived through one of the five senses. Okay, So when you read about miracles in the Bible, you typically see that people hear it, people taste it. You know, the Holy Spirit comes in like a mighty rushing wind. They hear it. The trumpet in the book of Joshua is blown and the walls fall. People heard it, right? Uh, People taste it and smell it. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, probably more like 20,000 people. They taste it. I don't want to go through all the five senses because I didn't plan on doing this and I don't have enough time. But, you know, Thomas, he had to touch the hands of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. It's perceived through one of the five senses. That's what constitutes a miracle. And if it doesn't do that, then it's commonly understood that that does not mean it's a miracle. Secondly, about miracles, a miracle is clearly when the laws of nature are defied. The laws of nature are defied. 
Okay? Chuck Swindoll puts it like this. Authentic miracles are undeniable acts of God in which he contravenes the laws of nature. They usually remedy a problem that would be impossible within the normal framework of life. So a miracle is when something happens that should not happen. Okay, And, and these things do still happen today. I'm not a cessationist. I do believe that these cessationists believe that miracles cease uh, you know, different spiritual gifts ceased. Uh, but personally, I'm not a cessationist. If you are, it's cool. You can still come to church here. We don't got to go fight in the parking lot. Everybody cool with that? Say amen, okay? Thirdly about miracles. Miracles are brief and very uncommon. I like what one person said. If miracles happened every day, they'd be called regulars. Really? But what do we do in the church? Miracles, 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 miracles. To where now we're to the point where I think most people don't even really believe in miracles because we call everything a miracle. But they're uncommon. They're very brief. I told you guys when we started the book of Acts, when we came up on the first miracle in the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is the history of the early church. And from chapter 1 all the way to the end, it constitutes about 30 years of the early church's history. You know how many recorded miracles we have in the book of Acts over 30 years? 30. Now, most people, preachers, when they get up on a platform to preach to you guys and they're preaching through the book of Acts, they're like, oh, there was tons of miracles. There was 10,000 miracles every single day that took place. And there are those places in the book of Acts where it says they healed many, they had miracles take place. But on record, for the first 30 years of the early church, we have 30 miracles. It's about one a year. So they're very brief they're very uncommon, okay? They're very brief and very uncommon. Uh, really, in the Scripture, you'll find three eras of miracles. You'll find from Moses to Joshua, the Exodus, uh, when they conquered you know, Jericho. That's one era where you'll find almost all the biblical miracles. The second era is in the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. You find all kinds of miracles when those guys were doing their prophetic ministries, tons of stuff that those guys did. And then the third era is Jesus and the apostles. Outside of those three eras in Scripture, there's not many miracles that take place, okay? So they're brief and they're very uncommon. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. Fourthly, miracles are instantaneous. They're instantaneous. Nowhere does it say that Aeneas went to physical therapy in order to stand up and be able to walk. He says, hey, get your bed, make your bed, get up and walk. And that's what happened. They're instantaneous. They happen. That They defy the laws of nature. Now, why am I going into detail on this and teaching this? Number one, it's because I believe, like I've kind of alluded to, that the church has made you and me feel like we are unspiritual or less of a Christian if we have never personally experienced or seen a miracle in our lives. And I'm here to tell you today, that's not true. God may choose to perform a miracle in your life. He may allow you to witness a miracle in your life. But if he doesn't, it's okay. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, it's okay. It's okay. You're still saved. Okay? It's about God's grace. You can still go to heaven. You can still be a mature believer and not have seen something that really is defined by the definition that we've given today. Secondly, the reason that I'm really going into depth on this 
is there's also a problem in the church today, and I think it's been a problem forever, in that, how can I put this? Some of us are guilty of chasing miracles instead of chasing Jesus, if that makes sense. We, we want a miracle in our lives when clearly Scripture tells us the main focus in your life should be getting closer to Jesus and spreading the gospel. If that, if that makes sense. Does that make sense to everybody? We teach on this all the time anytime we get a chance that I tell you guys, like, if you go into a church and you hear teaching or someone's teaching from a platform, and if you ever get the sense from a TV preacher or whatever that miracles are lifted above or there's more impetus put on miracles instead of Jesus and the gospels, get out. Get out. God can perform miracles. He can do that, absolutely. We pray for miracles in our lives. We're on that at the end, okay? I'll pray for you guys. But clearly our focus needs to be on Jesus and the spreading of the Gospels. So let me give you my second chart. Y'all ready for this one? Say amen. Is that good stuff? I hope so. Just lie to me. Say yeah. Y'all are good liars. You can repent at the end. Don't worry. We're under grace. Amen. (laughs) Once saved, always saved. Just lie. Um, Four qualities of biblical miracles. Now, while you may disagree with my definition that I've just gave about what constitutes a miracle, I'm sure you'll agree on the four qualities of miracles that we see in Scripture. Number one, anytime a miracle happens, if you read Scripture, God is always glorified, not a man or a woman. Let me say that again. God is always glorified, not a man or a woman. Number two, anytime you see miracles happen in Scripture, there is no showmanship. There's no showmanship, okay? Absolutely none. In fact, if you read the Bible and see the miracles in the Bible, miracles rarely have a large audience. Most of the time, they're quiet, they're serene, they're dignified, they're personal. Nobody ever uses them to impress people or entertain people or to draw a crowd. Never. And so when you see someone, I don't want to call anybody out, but like, you know, when you see Benny Hinn in a stadium, I'm not questioning his ministry. I'm not saying people can't get saved. I'm not saying God can't work. I'm just saying when you see him on a stage throwing the Holy Spirit around, making a show out of it, in my opinion, that's completely unbiblical. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Okay. If you like Benny Hinn, I'm sorry. It's, it's, I want to say something, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Thirdly, When you see a miracle happen, you see biblical truth validated. Biblical truth is validated. In other words, a miracle happens because God's keeping his promise. Biblical truth is validated. Uh, I don't know how to explain this to you in (laughs) miracles being overused and not understood fully. Um, I explained it like this in the last service. I don't know how effective it was. But if you're living with your boyfriend... Or girlfriend, and you're playing house, and you're living in sin, and at this church, we believe 100% that's sin. And by the way, if your life's falling apart, and you can't figure out what's wrong with your relationship, it's probably because you're not doing it God's way, and you're living in sin, just FYI. So and we'll marry you, so just, just call the church. If you come here regular, we'll marry you. We have people all the time, all the time, that call and say, boy, that hit me between the eyes. We need to get married, and we need to get right. Amen, Rev Church? And so We'd love to do it. Amen, Jeff? (laughs) Brandon, we love doing it. It's awesome when we do it. But anyway, if you're living in sin, sorry, if you're living in sin 
and you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and we're not trying to judge you. We're just, we're, we are who we are, okay? We're unapologetic about what Scripture says while we try to be gentle. And you say, hey, God performed a miracle in our lives. We couldn't pay rent together, but now he's given us some money to pay rent. It's probably not a miracle from God to allow you to keep living in sin. I don't know how to explain it other than that. Biblical truth is validated is my point, okay? Uh, fourthly, and this is a big one, Every time you see miracles in the Bible, people get saved. People get saved. Okay? Maybe you would argue with me on that and be like, well, technically, Josh, in the Old Testament, Jesus wasn't there, so how could people get saved? Okay, let me put it this way. Unbelievers are convinced to believe when miracles happen in the Scripture. What did it say at the end of this? And you're going to see it with the next person that gets Raised from the dead. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Okay? In other words, God uses small miracles to make the greatest miracle happen. God uses this man who was lame for eight years to be healed in order to see that greater miracles can happen because people meet Jesus and get saved. Josh, why do you say that's a greater miracle? Because, well, to be quite honest, that miracle cost more in the death of Jesus on the cross. And that miracle, when people get saved, is what leads them to eternal life in heaven where they find ultimate healing and ultimate fulfillment. You know if you're a believer in here and you're struggling with some kind of thing you need healing from, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, or whatever, you know that God never says no on healing, right? He has two answers. He says, yes, I'll heal you, or not right now, wait till you get to heaven when you're made whole. Y'all know that? Amen? Okay, so you should look forward to that. So that's why it's a greater miracle. We continue in verse 36. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. (laughs) In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Now, I think the word name Dorcas is kind of weird, and uh, we're not going to call her Dorcas because I'll tell jokes every time I say her name, okay? We're going to refer to her as Tabitha. Uh, great name back in the day, but now biblical names are weird. <laughs> Pastor Brandon, you know what I want to say, right? Like, it's just, you don't want to name your kid Judah. Worst name to have right now is Brandon, right, Pastor Brandon? Like, goodness gracious. I'm not trying to say anything political. I'm just saying, like, how do kids root for their kids when they're playing Little League if their kid's name is Brandon anymore, you know? Like, and I, again, I'm, I'm not, it just is. If it, was the, if it was the other side of the aisle, it'd be the same thing. I'd be like, dude, is, it'll go away, though, bro. We love Pastor Brandon, though. Amen, y'all? Amen. We love Pastor Brandon. I can't help but think of that, though. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas has made. Dorcas had made, ah, Tabitha. Tabitha had made while she was still with them. Her name's Tabitha in Aramaic, Dorcas in the Greek. Her name actually means gazelle. 
And Tabitha was a kingdom influencer. Tabitha was a believer that loved God, and she's fulfilling the book of Proverbs that says you're supposed to help the poor. She has a sewing ministry where she sewed clothing for women And here we are, we're given a picture to the moment that she dies and all these women that had received this clothing from Tabitha are there and they're mourning. Now, as I've told you, when you get to heaven, you need to look forward to it. So this is is great for Tabitha, but lame for the church because the church is in mourning at her death. I was thinking about that this week and this is a rabbit trail, but I was just thinking, man, what are people going to say when you die, y'all? Tabitha gives us just a great picture of what our funeral should really be like, you know. I know y'all are a lot like me when you go to people's funerals and they were hellions and didn't know Jesus. Everybody lies. You know what I mean? Like everybody lies like Christ. They were so great and I know he's at the pearly gates right now. You do what I do. You're sitting there listening going, that's a lie, that's a lie don't know if he's there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just being serious. That's the way we are, especially in the Bible Belt of Crossville. I hope people can say stuff at my funeral like they said about Tabitha, and I really hope that it's true because she's making an impact on the kingdom. Now, what's important out of this scripture, if you'll allow me just to teach you again just for a couple minutes, is when Tabitha dies, the sequence of events that takes place is very unusual. When, when Tabitha dies, it's very out of the norm because the people did not bury her immediately. The Bible says that they cleansed the corpse, placed it in the upper room, uh, and that's not normal because what they should have done was they should have applied a coating of what they call spiced resin around her body. And then the next day after they put her body in a burial cave, they would have packed her body with about 100 pounds of spices. But that's not what they did. They placed her body in a place that was reserved for people to do two things, eat and sleep. Now, this is weird because if you know anything about the Old Testament law, you know that people, according to the Old Testament law, were not allowed to even go near a dead body. And here they are cleaning the body and putting it in an upper room where people would clearly potentially come in contact with it. It's very unusual. I like to think of Peter as showing up as thinking that he's going to officiate a funeral, and instead he finds out, wait, the body's where? Upstairs? In the upper room? With everything we see in this scripture, and and this is kind of speculation, and we could go a couple different ways with this, but with everything we see, It appears that the people were not preparing her body to be buried, but they were preparing her body to be resurrected. Now, we don't know if these believers, they heard the Old Testament stories. uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, Elijah raises a widow's son. They heard about Jesus when he's walking through Nan and sees that there's a funeral for a lady's son, and he raises them from the dead. Maybe they've heard these stories And as they see Peter as an extension of the ministry of Jesus, they think to themselves, if we get Peter here, then maybe she could be raised from the dead. We'll never know. Maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven. But this is what happens in verse 40. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. Peter sent them all out of the room. 
Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. Once again, just a side note, we see Peter emulate the master Jesus. Almost mirrors exactly what Jesus did one time when he healed somebody. Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, when Jesus said to a little girl that was dead, Talitha come, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Almost exactly what Peter says here. I want to close today with this idea, though, as we see Peter raise this woman from the dead. In fact, let me continue. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa. And then there's that thing again. Many people believed in the Lord. This lady was raised from the dead, I believe, because of one thing that preceded her resurrection, and that was prayer. Notice, the Holy Spirit gives Peter the power to resurrect this lady, but first came the prayer. I think that this is so important for us because in the church today, especially in America, All of us want to see the power of God in our lives. All of us would love to see God perform miracles in our lives, and you should, absolutely. You should want the power of God. But what I find in myself and I find in most people is often one of the areas that is absolutely a necessity in order to see the power of God in your life that is left to the side more often than not is prayer prayer. How many of y'all have uh, kids that are teenagers or younger? Raise your hand. Anybody in here? Okay. How many of y'all's kids have cell phones that kids are young in here? Okay. We got our kids a cell phone about a year or two ago, and we put screen whatever's on them where if they're on it more than a certain amount of time, it shuts off and stuff. But the main reason we got it is because we like them having a phone whenever we're out they go to the bathroom by themselves or go in a store or something like that, they can call us if something's up. If they're with a friend, they're at an event or something like that, uh, we like for them to have a phone to be able to call us if they need us to come get them or anything like that. But we've learned this about our kids. We've learned that anytime we're getting ready to go somewhere, like when we were on vacation a few weeks ago, there was a few times we were going to go to the beach, right? Anytime we're getting ready to go somewhere, we have to remind our kids to charge their phones, Because parent, I can already hear parents going, that's right. They never charge their phones. So the night before, it's always like, is your phone charged? Or we're getting ready to leave. Is your phone charged? No, I'm at 3%. Well, how's that going to last all day? You know what I mean? Like you just want to strangle them. You know what I'm saying? And we have to constantly remind them, you need to charge your phone or your phone's going to die. Because a phone is totally useless if there's no power in it, right? For the believer, we all want to be used, but the problem comes in when we have no power because we haven't been charged up through prayer. By the way, parents in here, of all those kids, you're going to have to be the one spiritually that reminds your kids to get charged up. 
If they're at 3%, guess whose job it is to make sure they get charged back up so that they can be safe? It ain't my job, and it ain't this church's job. It is your job, mom and dad. I'm getting ahead of myself because next weekend's Father's Day, and I'm preaching my sermon already, okay? It's your job. Is everybody with me? Say amen. amen. If you want God's power in your life, you need to plug into him and get charged up through prayer. Heard a story about two guys that, now this is horrible theology, so don't go theologically on this, but you'll, you'll understand why I'm going, okay? Heard a story about two guys that died and went to heaven. One was a cab driver, one was a pastor. And they get to the pearly gates, and the cab driver, he looks rough, man. He's got crazy looking hair, you know. I was going to say he's tattooed up all over, but that doesn't mean anything nowadays, you know what I mean? Like, but when I heard this story, they were saying that. But, you know, just horrible language, real foul guy and everything. You get the idea, right? And this cab driver goes up to St. Peter and gives him his name. And St. Peter says, oh, yeah, we've been waiting on you. Welcome in. We got a satin robe for you with purple and all these colors on it. We've got a gold crown with all these jewels on it for you. We're so glad you're here. Well, the pastor sees this cab driver go in and get all those rewards and and the pastor's thinking, oh, man, if a cab driver gets that, what am I going to get, you know? And so he goes up to Peter and gives him his name, and the pastor's standing there, and Peter says, oh, yeah, we've been waiting on you. Here's a cloth robe. Here's a brass crown. Go on in. Have a good time. And the pastor sees this cloth robe and this brass crown, and he's like, what's up with that? You gave the guy before me who was a cab driver a satin robe, gold and jewels and all kinds of and all I get's this cloth robe with a brass crown I've been a pastor for 40 years don't I get more than him St. Peter looks at him and says listen it's about effectiveness pastor when you were preaching in your church everybody was sleeping when he was driving his cab everybody was praying (laughs) Prayer is so important, y'all. Amen? It's so important. In fact, just to make this a little more applicational, um, the Lord's really been dealing with me for the past year or two on the importance of prayer. So much so that really, um, in the first years of the church, we probably neglected a ministry that was very important, and uh, that is elders praying for sick people. And James chapter 5, well, let me just read it to you. It says, is anyone among you in trouble? Guess what the Bible tells you to do? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. We don't have time to get into the theology of this. It's not always physical healing uh, that that means. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, and listen to this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Prayer. Prayer. 
couple people this week were sick, and I was like, hey, if you need the elders of the church to pray for you, let us know, and you need to know that's available to you. It's part of the ministry of being an elder is if you guys are sick, you got cancer, you got something like that, you need to hit the office up and schedule a time that we can pray for you, anoint you with oil, and pray for healing in your life. Prayer is so foundational to this church because we found that what James chapter 5 says is true. We believe it so much so that that we push y'all to get in the growth track and find a group to get involved in. In other words, what we found here is, is that if people are going to get healed, then you're going to have to have people around you praying for you. You can't just come to church. That's why we push you guys to get in a group, to go to men's ministry where it's all about small groups, women's ministry, it's all about small groups, uh, rev students, all about small groups, kids is all about small groups because you need people not just when you're struggling, but you need people so you can be healed. What did it say? I'm almost done. I know I've went over. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The way we like to put it is, when you confess your sins to Jesus, you're forgiven of your sins for eternity. But the Bible alludes to that's not when true healing takes place. When you confess your sins to other believers is when you find healing. Jesus would say it this way, who the Son sets free when you get saved free is free indeed, a whole nother level of freedom. You need healing physically. You need to settle your yesterdays. You've got emotional pain. You've got heartache. You've got problems. You're going through something right now. You've got pain right now. You've got all kinds of things. You've got something going on where you feel like the only way this is going to get any better or be fixed is if there is a miracle that God does. That's the only way. We would say to you, coming to church is great. We're so glad you're here. But you need other believers in your life so that you can be healed through prayer. Amen, Rev Church. Let me pray. I've went over. Lord, we love you. Thank you for today. I thank you for every single person that's here. God, there are people under the sound of my voice that are facing situations, diagnoses. Uh, they've got relationships, something going on in their life. And there is no way by the laws of nature or man that they're going to get out of it, that it's going to be fixed, and that they're going to be healed. And they need a miracle in their life. And so, God, we trust you completely and fully. Your will be done. If we don't get what we want and there's not a miracle, we're going to follow you, we're going to trust in you, and we're not going to walk away from you. But God, we do ask today and come to you very humbly and ask you that you would work in these situations. We love you. You are awesome. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.